the Dynamic Deputies. Hello and welcome to the Dynamic Deputies podcast, run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. We really hope you've enjoyed our recent episodes. Steve, haven't we been lucky? Uh, We have indeed, Russell. Can you believe that already in 2022, we've explored etymology and morphology, scaffolding, efficient teaching strategies, curriculum design and inclusion. It's been an amazing start to the year. It has indeed, and it only gets better, Steve. A year ago, we were joined by Gareth Metcalf, who spoke to us all about reasoning in maths. In that episode, we looked at what reasoning is, the potential barriers to children reasoning successfully, and how we can support children to become more confident when reasoning. Luckily for us, Gareth is back once again, and this time to focus on problem solving. Gareth, I promise not to get leg cramp midway through this episode. Welcome back to the podcast. Well, you've reassured me that you weren't teaching in reception today, Russell, so I've got great (laughs) confidence that you'll get through today. (laughs) I should be fine. (laughs) He's in fine fettle. Hi, Gareth, and welcome back. And can we just say it's awesome to have you back on. If we jump straight into the problem solving in itself, can we start by having a definition in terms of how would you describe what problem solving is and what is the relationship between fluency and reasoning and problem solving? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first thing I wanted to get to on that is, you know, I work in a number of different schools. And what always interests me is if you look at the maths policy and you go to a maths policy and there'll be an overarching statement in the opening paragraph. And it will say something like, we want our children to be fluent problem solvers flexible with number and we have these really valuable high aspirations for what we want from our children in their maths curriculum and then when you look at the content of the policy what we really map out is this is how they become fluent in maths Mm. and I, I think the elephant in the room is there isn't that enormous clarity on what is the pedagogy that enables us to build these skills in children that we desire them to have. Mm. And, uh, and that's why problem solving to me is, is kind of such a fascinating area. Now, I guess your, your question, Steve, is actually what, what is a problem? What mm. makes a question of problem solving or task of problem solving task? And I think of it in terms of any question or challenge where the path to answer that question or to respond to that challenge isn't clearly defined. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, there's shades of grey within that because that might differ from one person to the next. So I, I was thinking about this before. And if there was an example like there are 200 children in the school, there are 20 more girls than boys. Now, I have actually automated the process to answer that question, whereas to another individual that may become problem solving mm-hmm. because that path is ill-defined, if you like. And I think it can encompass like a, a, a very wide range of of different tasks. So if it was, for example, um, it could be like Mr. Pearson wants to buy some wellies for his class, but he doesn't know what sizes to buy, then that could be a problem-solving task, which would be very different from a problem-solving task that might be more in a kind of calculation aspect, mass curriculum, how many ways can this be answered, to uh, worded questions, famously, <laughs> and, and logic puzzles. But I think that the, the kind of the thing that marries them all together is this idea of it is an ill-defined route to find the answer and in in terms of really interesting other points a few different points you'd raised in the in the question there fluency i think is a, is a really interesting one because i always think of problem solving as being by its very nature it's something that is it comes with a very large cognitive demand because it is this task w- where we have to find the route through to find the answer and that comes with a really heavy load on, on working memory. And I think that being fluent, it really 
helps us in that sense of actually having more capacity in our working memory free. And I think that's one thing that the power of fluency in supporting problem solving is one thing that I'd always underappreciated, mm. the significance of, of that, which I'm sure we'll kind of come to unpick. When I think of reasoning, I, I always think of reasoning as being something that is interwoven in almost all of children's mathematical experiences. And, and I think it's interesting relating to, to problem solving and actually the understanding and the unpicking, the explaining of the process of problem solving. Like I've, I've done lots of problem solving tasks where children with their great vigor go and attack them and they, they maybe use a trial and error method and they you know, go about it in different ways and maybe they find the solution and they're delighted about that. And that's great. And th- there's an example task that I've used, which is around putting digits on a grid. So we know the sums for the columns and the rows and children are given specific digits and they put them on the grid. And an example would be they move the digits around and eventually they find the answer and they're delighted. <laughs> but then the reasoning there could still be drawn out in terms of, well, what was a logical starting point here? Mm. And, you know, where, let's say our largest digit, where could that go? Where couldn't it go? And so I think it's incumbent on the teacher to really consider, well, this is how I draw the reasoning out from the problem-solving task that we're looking at. Fantastic. Yeah, great description. And you've reminded me of the value of reasoning there. And I know we're talking about problem-solving, but it's all interwoven, as you've said there. But reasoning, just being where the learning's really happening in the maths lesson, isn't Mm. it? Where we're really exploring the how. And we're, I think you described it last time, we're kind of illuminating their thinking when when we allow space for reasoning. Now, in that fantastic episode on on reasoning, Gareth, I remember us saying that one potential barrier to a child's success is not having enough prerequisite knowledge. To what extent is kind of domain-specific knowledge important when problem-solving? This is a really interesting one because I think that I've made so many mistakes, I I think, in in my teaching of problem-solving. And I think it comes back to that original point I made, really, about it not being, there not being a very clear narrative on the best pedagogy around problem-solving. An, an example that I would give would be there was a task that I've always loved and I still love called NIM7, yeah. where there are seven counters and two players and you take one or two counters on your go and you win if you have the last go. And of course, that's a, a task that we can all access, but it, it's possible to really go deep in terms of understanding a, a winning strategy. I think that I used to believe more than I do now that being successful at a problem solving task like NIM7 would translate directly to children being able to answer a problem-solving task that might involve a calculation involving fractions. Now I I see that a little bit differently Mm. because I underappreciated the importance of the domain-specific knowledge Mm. when it it comes to problem-solving. Sometimes I think we can think, oh, these children are strong problem-solvers or or, these children struggle in problem-solving. And one lens or one question that might be worth asking is, is it actually what we're looking at is how much working memory capacity does that child have when they've read the question and when they've thought about the kind of computational element, how much capacity do they have left to think about the broader structure of a, of a problem? And like an analogy that I would use is I'm terrible at navigating my way anywhere. <laughs> but if you asked me to navigate my way somewhere whilst I was still learning to drive, I'd be even worse because obviously so much of my thought process is taken up with the skills that I haven't automated whereas now that they are automated and, and I can attend uh, you know I've got more space to attend to that and I think that's hugely relevant for problem solving the, the only caveat I would have to that is I am passionate that all children have access 
and uh, have the opportunity to have success in problem solving. So I think it is therefore, rather than saying, well, therefore the problem solving comes after the fluency, we may also have to think, well, how is it that we can knock down those other barriers so that problem solving becomes accessible to all children? And that might be just thinking, well, how do I, if we're going to have challenge in, in this problem solving activity, I maybe I don't want it coming from too many places. And I guess the obvious ones would be thinking, well, how do I limit the cognitive load that comes from the reading the question and from the, 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 the challenge of the calculation that's involved as well? Mm, what an answer. Thank you. And actually, that takes us on to something we mentioned in our introduction today. Russell mentioned about our recent episode on the podcast about scaffolding. Gareth, could you tell us about the role of scaffolding when teaching problem solving? Firstly, why is it needed? And can you give us some examples of how it might look, particularly with word problems, which we know so many children find incredibly hard? Yeah, well, it, it was a brilliant episode. And so I actually quote you really when you said, and <laughs> um, there's the paradox, and I don't know if this is exactly what you said, that if we want children to be independent, we have to provide scaffolds to enable them to be independent and then be in the process of removing that scaffold, mm. uh, which I couldn't, I, I think it applies absolutely completely when it, when it comes to problem solving and giving children opportunities and actually teaching and uncovering the thinking of problem solving then to be able to be able to remove the scaffold from that so the the way that I think about that I guess is thinking well this is where this is the kind of this is the task that I want the children to be able to do and then to be able to work back from that and deconstruct that and think these are all the precursor skills that I want children to be fluent in and I will get to word problems but just as an example uh, one of the questions that I've that I've used um, that springs to mind on this one is a question uh, about a sum of the digits challenge. Mm. So the, the the question is something like the sum of the digits of a number is six. All the digits are different. What's the largest the number can be? What's the smallest the number can be? And if I launch in with that, a lot of the, the children will have low success, and they, they've they still need to define, well, what do I mean by the sum of the digits? Mm. And they're not familiar with the kind of almost the context of the task. And I always find that if you want children to persevere when they problem solve, the best way to do that is to give them high initial success. Mm. And I tend to find that if children have experienced initial success, then when the challenge comes later, they're, they're, they're willing to go deeper. So an example of what I've done there is, first of all, model some different numbers and say, Let's say 123. Say so it's a three-digit number. The sum of the digits is six. And then give children maybe three different numbers. So an example, I think on top of my head. Well, let, let, let's say I give them 213. I, I could give them 1,023. Mm -hmm. um, is that using the same digits with a zero? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and maybe 89. And I could ask them, what's the sum of the digits? How many digits? And, and you know, there, I like that one because then the, the smallest number has got the largest digits on. Yeah. And then I might say to children, right, the sum of the digits of a number is eight. What could the number be? And again, we're hopefully having high success and the children are writing, can it be eight? Oh, so what about 17, 71? It could be six billion and two. Then we might narrow down to but having had the six billion and two. Well, all the digits have got to be different. And then we have this initial success before we, before we introduce the task. Now, when it comes to word problems, I think this is a fascinating one. And I've done a lot, as many people have, around understanding word questions by initially removing 
the opportunity to calculate. So in a really simple way, take a word problem, put boxes over the numbers and ask the children to come up with a possible answer. Now, I, I like to go, the, the technique that I use in certain instances with a word question might be, and let's say the classic one where we're, we're, we're at a shop and we're, be, we're going to be asked something like, how many apples can Gareth afford? Or, or maybe it's going to be, how much change does Gareth get? Or, or it could be, how much more money does Gareth need? Or it might be, how much does Gareth pay? And, and they're the likely questions we're going to have. Now, what I would do there is show children the picture of maybe the foods in the shop and cover up the information and the question. And I could say, so I tend to go, the information in the blue box, the question covered by a red box. And ask the children, well, what could the question be? And we come up with a list of questions. And when the children generate the questions, they've got to be thinking, well, what information would I need to answer that question? And that would be my go-to response. And so when children see the question, like how many apples can Gareth afford, they have to think, well, what information is required to answer that question? So... How much money does he have? I was thinking myself there. <laughs> if we then say, no, actually, the question was, how much change does he get? Then I've got to identify, well, to be able to answer that question, I'll need to know what he buys and what he pays with. And he'll have to pay with more than, than the cost. And then, then when children see the information and the numbers, they've thought about the structure. So I, I, I wanted to come up with a class, uh, like a classic little one, and I was going to put you two on the spot if you don't mind. Oh, God. Uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's say a classic one would be eggs in boxes. Mm -hmm. so, so let's say for, for all of these questions, we're saying there's six eggs per box. And so it could be that I have a question and, and I cover up. So the farmer has box eggs, and then they need this many boxes to hold all the eggs and, and say to the children, so what could the answer be? And they might come up with 30 eggs. You need five boxes to hold all the eggs. Mm -hmm. And so I, I might then take that example and say, yeah, that's correct. What about if he had 25 eggs? How many boxes would he need to hold all the eggs? And then it would be the same number of boxes. Mm -hmm. I just have one. Now, the other thing that I would suggest is around then, it, as almost as a scaffold, are the sequencing of questions that could come next. And um, this is really taken from Craig Barton's book, which was looking at variation, which I thought was really important. And, and he talked about if you change only little from one question to another, if perhaps only one element changes, it highlights, like a science experiment would, the effect of that change. And I think when it comes to like gradually increasing the challenge in problem solving, I think this is a really powerful strategy. So let let me put you on the spot. So again, all of these questions, I've written a little, it's just a sequence of four questions for you to have a go at. And for all of them, we've got eggs packed in boxes where there's six eggs per box. So if I was to say, uh, so question one is, the farmer has 30 eggs. How many boxes can she fill? Five. Yeah, five. Very good, very good. What, what our listeners can't see is how me and Steve's body language has changed. <laughs> I was just going to say that. We literally both sat up. Or was I right? Come on. We both sat up. That was true. That, that was a definite move. <laughs> okay, so question one was 30 eggs. How many boxes do you fill? Correctly answered five. Question two, the farmer has 32 eggs. How many boxes can she fill? She can fill five. <laughs> Still fill five. Okay, so only fill five. You, I think you know what's coming. So, so it's yeah. the same answer, even though there's more eggs. Mm. Okay. So question three. So the farmer has 32 eggs. How many boxes does she need to hold all the eggs? Six. Six. <laughs> Six. Very good. 
And what, what the only thing that's changed is the, the, is the question we go from how many to fill to how many to hold all. And we can appreciate now the effect of that change. OK, last one, question four. So question three was 32 eggs, how many can she hold? Question four is the farmer has 64 eggs. How many boxes does she need to hold all the eggs? I can feel the nervousness. Oh, 11? 11, yeah. 11. There we go. Yeah, the, the, the point that I raised there, so 32 eggs, she needs six boxes. Mm. And yet 64 eggs, she, she needs 11 boxes. Yeah. You would think it's double the number of boxes. Yes, yes. And so I might draw out, well, why is it not double the number of boxes? Double the number of eggs, so it's not double the number of boxes. Yeah. But almost just the, the point that I'd make, I guess, is just the sequencing uh, as well can help to show children just in these tiny little steps as we increase or change the challenge and for them to see how problem-solving questions relate to one another mm. and how oh, I can see that when that changes, it has this effect. And, and I always think of that as a, a kind of form of scaffold as well. Can I just uh, pick up on that? Because what I find so interesting about that is what you're saying is it's really important to highlight context. And that's such a good example with a classic division. And, you know, you can put that into all sorts of contexts. Any person that's taught year six knows all the past SATs questions about CD racks, <laughs> how many CD racks are going to be needed for a certain amount of CDs versus how many can I actually fill? Pen, yeah, pencils in boxes and all that. Yeah, Kids in cars, on car journeys, football teams and so on. And I love all that. But so often what you see in sort of generic problem solving display, rucksack style kind of advice is you know, ignore the context, let's pull out the numbers and the mathematical words and sort of make sense. And it's funny, I had a, a one of our teachers this week was working one-to-one with a pupil and she said to me, oh, I've just realised working one-to-one with her that every time she sees a word problem, she just pulls out the maths word. If it, it looks like it's got something to do with, say, subtraction, because she's seen the word difference, she'll find those two numbers and take them away and completely ignore the context. Yeah. So actually, sometimes we think we're helping children to say, oh, see through all the context and ignore that and just pick out the mathy words and the numbers. It's not actually helping them, is it? It's an, it's an interesting one, that, because if a context is within a child's lived experience, you would think it would actually help them mm. because they will have a mental yeah. model for that, for that process. Mm. I, I think another interesting, I talked about the variation where I kept the context the same. The context was always eggs. Yeah. And another way I, I think is an interesting one there is keeping all the numbers the same and just changing the context and mm -hmm. for children to have to interpret and move between these different contexts and think essentially in this case is would I round up or would I round down in this context? Yeah. And what I think I used to do far too much was jump around between different problem solving tasks or different types of questions. And I think if I would have changed less children would have had more clarity on the effects of those different changes. I think it, it, it was harder for children it, from my initial teaching to be absolutely clear on that. So you're saying there that mathematical variation or careful variation of questions is actually a really helpful scaffold. Absolutely. Yeah, nice. I'd never thought about it like that variation as, as a form of scaffolding, but that makes complete sense now that you explain that. Mm. Thank you. So we've talked so far about prerequisite knowledge and also the importance of that quality scaffolding. Perhaps next, could we talk about the role of teachers modelling when problem solving? And uh, you touched on it a little bit, but could we go into that a bit more? How important is modelling? And do you have any tips for modelling for those teachers listening? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think modelling is, is, is really crucial and it comes in different ways. So it might be that, that I actually model and draw out related examples. And I would, I would want to think how directly related to the example that the children are doing would be the examples that I would model mm -hmm. and I would say when children 
are more novice in, in it might be that they're more directly related to the examples that they're provided. The differences might emerge and might be more significant as well, how that's appropriate. I think what's really interesting is as children are working, we consider what is it that we will draw out and we'll draw attention to. Because when we're problem solving, there's so many directions that things can go in. And I would want to think, I, I like to think that I would think beforehand, and probably in re reality, it's, it's like what I notice whilst children are problem solving, but it's thinking about, well, either what will be the key differences between children either being correct or incorrect, or even possibly more useful to think in the context of problem solving, is what's the difference between good and great problem solving? And to be able to think like, what do we want children to be able to take away from this experience? And that can be a difficult thing to narrow down on because there could be so many different aspects that you could focus on. But I would want to think, well, what, what is the defining thing that I want them to be able to take away as the difference, let's say, between good and great problem solving? And how do I focus children's thinking on that? And that is a, is a real, you know, is a real skill. And I think it, it, it it's requires the time to step back and listen and watch and see everything that's that's happening. And probably the most obvious example to draw out there would be if children were engaged in a, in a how many ways task. So it's so a task where you could find an answer, you could find different answers. But the, the challenge is, can you find, you know, how many answers there are? Like what I often find is children will scattergun answers. And what I'm trying to do is think, how can I draw children's attention to and get them to think about the systematic approaches to finding all the different answers? And then I might need to find ways to draw out that thinking. I think considering, well, what are the things that we will draw attention to is really important. And then the other thing that I think is interesting around that, that I've underappreciated, is what I might do there is stop children and find the child who's doing the thing that I would consider for us to want to highlight. And then they talk about that. And I think now I would try and leverage silence a lot more and actually draw attention to that expert problem solving, but actually give children the time for their, their internal narrative to, to look at and consider this is what expert problem solving actually looks like. I, I think I would often have it vocalised what it looked like but without necessarily children thinking as deeply as they could do about those few things. I think I would generally scattergun lots of the best things that I saw without children really having the opportunity to focus, think deeply about the one or two aspects of excellent problem solving that I really wanted to draw out. So I guess that would be the general advice that I would have. Perfect. And that actually takes us on really nicely because with problem solving, something that really interests me is what kind of notes, workings, doodles, children choose to write out on solving problems. So I guess my question is that to what extent should we push particular approaches and how much should we just let them rely on their own intuitive ideas or strategies? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question that. And I, I, I wouldn't profess to having a, a definitive answer on that other than I think it's really, you know, it's, it's really important to try and visualise the process of problem solving. We, you know, we, we know we can process language and images simultaneously and, and they become more memorable. I think it's great to be able to draw comparisons, to be able to see different strategies and for children to, to think about them. Something that I guess that I, I, I thought of around this is if I've been engaged in a problem solving activity at that moment, I'm probably very wedded to the strategy that I've just been using. Mm. And so I often think that in 
discussing and drawing attention and actually reflecting on which strategy is most effective. I sometimes find that I have more success uh, on a different day than in that moment. For children, when, when they're one step removed from the actual challenge to be able to look at and analyse the different approaches and, and see the kind of value in them. And I think there is that balance between you need to model to show what good looks like, what excellent looks like, and then know when it is you stand back and, you know, and let children have a go at different things. And, and, and I think there's, some, there's sometimes, it probably depends on the actual problem-solving task as well, where, where there's sometimes that different strategies have got, you know, because you'll want children to, to move eventually towards what would be a, a more efficient strategy. And let, let's say we were using a strategy using counters. It might be that we want children eventually to be able to represent something as a bar model so we could scale up when we were working in, in larger quantities. But um, yeah, but I think drawing out different methods and celebrating different processes has got great value as well. I love that tip, don't you, Steve, of examining those different strategies you've seen in the class, maybe the next day at the start of the next lesson, just distancing that a little bit. Because I can think back to certain pupils in that class that you and me both yeah, had yeah. many years ago, but who, yeah, children become quite protective, don't they, of mm. their way. And what a simple tip just to create a little bit of distance and then to say, you know, I saw some really interesting approaches in your books yesterday. And I just want to make a little bit of time to look at a couple of those and compare them. You don't even have to pick out the children. Yeah. But just I bet that next day that pupil would just have a little bit more openness to at least examining that alternative way of doing things. I've probably had a bit of that myself, yeah. you know, in my own life as well, where, you know, you get you get really in one way of doing things. And then the next day you get a bit more perspective. Yeah, yeah. I really like that. And I, I think children seeing, you know, two plausible approaches, but just examining that efficiency with um had a unit in year six recently where I do PPA around finding percentages and numbers. And that's such a good example of where when we're using those kind of blocks of percentages that we know how to find easily our tens, <laughs> our fifties, our fives, our ones. 25, yeah. Yeah. And we put those together to make that lump that we're trying to find like 26% or something. There is more than one plausible way of finding that that percentage but sometimes you can't generalize with that because it depends on the number we're finding the percentage of one day mm -hmm. these two blocks together is going to be a really good idea and another day depending on the number another block will, will be more effective and it's been fun with the children to put different approaches up and say well this one took me three steps this one took me five which do you think <laughs> which do you think was harder work absolutely i always think it's interesting if you ask a child to find 24% of 100. <laughs> they have to start looking for 10% and 1% and yeah. 25%. Yeah, that's such a good example. Okay, so I'm considering lots of the different types of mathematical problems we get, and it's so broad, isn't it? But can we talk about the sort of, I consider them those kind of algebraic challenges that are often uh, represented pictorially. And I think of them as algebraic because my, my go-to is to make them into sort of traditional algebra straight away and as I say this I'm really thinking of a particular problem I've looked at recently with some year sixes and it's in the 2018 key stage two uh, I think the first reasoning maths paper where some hexagons and some other shapes which I believe are called sectors I have to admit I had to look that up uh, if you imagined uh, sorry horrible bit of shape vocabulary here a kind of flattened cone or a triangle that's had a sort of one curved edge and these sectors and hexagons are combined in different ways and then we're told the totals of these two sort of images that have been made 
And the children are supposed to uh, use this information that's represented in these two pictures to derive the value of the sectors and these hexagons. Now, I know so many children that are faced with a problem like that, a really visual problem like that, and they just think, what on earth, where do I begin and how do I start to break down this kind of problem? For me, as I said, it's basic algebra when you break it down and the calculations you need to do are fairly straightforward. How do we help children on knowing where to even start with that kind of problem, do you think? Yeah, that's an interesting one. By the way, whenever I open a, a, a maths sats paper, I always think I'm going to live with these questions for years. Yep. You're wedded to them. <laughs> I'm going to be so familiar with these questions. It's quite a nervous moment. Oh. I think. Does anyone remember that one where you had like a rectangle where you had to cut it into... I already know what you're going to say. Yeah, <laughs> that was mind-blowing. Or when they had the uh, the rectangle with the... Do you remember the fractions one, which was clearly just a basic fractions that make a whole one? And it's like, I think it's a plot for some carrots and some potatoes and things. <laughs> yeah. It's like a... Yeah, yeah. Again, like you say, just wedded to your memory. Sorry, answer the question, Gareth, before we go down a rabbit hole of past that question. <laughs> uh, absolutely, yeah. So so I'm sure a lot of people will have this image absolutely clear in their mind's mm. eye. But so, so we've got... Uh, we've got one shape which has got two hexagons and three sectors stuck onto it and another shape with one hexagon and three sectors stuck on and they look a little bit different and then i i, I think russell you, you said something like the children think what on earth they're a bit overwhelmed by all the information mm. and and don't know what to do and and they've seen numbers and want to do something with the numbers generally and and yeah. no, we know that novice problem solvers tend to spend less time thinking about the underlying structure of a problem and they, and they and they want to do something quickly. Now, what I would do there is I would, first of all, remove the opportunity for children to calculate an answer immediately. So I, I would cover up as much information as I could. So let's say we just see the images and we ask the children what they notice mm. um, to begin with. And what I guess we're trying to draw attention to is the similarity and the differences between the two images. And, and then we might, again, we might reveal that the, the, the total value is cover up the boxes. So what we have is we've got the total value for one shape, the total value for another shape, and we're asked for the values for the individual shapes. And what, what I've actually done before with this question is, is cut out the shapes and, and lay them out. So on, on the top line, you've got three sectors and two hexagons, and directly underneath it, you have three sectors and one hexagon. And what I'm trying to draw attention to is that there's one more hexagon on mm. one of the shapes than the other one. Now, it could be I could use double-sided counters and I could stick, because that, that would more generalize this problem as well. And I, and I could put, uh, you know, a red counter on the sectors, a yellow counter on the hexagons, and then I could line them up. But it is, is that, it's what's the same and what's different is the kind of key. And the other thing I would do is absolutely minimize the challenge in the number range I'd be using in the calculation. Because again, let's say some children are, are lost because they th there's nothing intuitive that comes to them because they're looking at the numbers and, and they don't see any any pattern. Now, uh, the, the way that I've gone around and picking that one, because I'm, I'm very familiar with this one, is first of all, giving children the value of each individual shape and then asking them to calculate what the value of the combined shapes are. So let's say I, I say, well, let's imagine that the vector, the sectors, the vectors, the sectors are worth 10 and the hexagons are worth 15. And what would the value of the left hand shape be? What would the value of the right hand shape be? And then I might do, do it the other way around and say, actually, the value of the left hand shape is 16. The value of the right hand shape is 11. 
But what we essentially want children to note is that what's the difference between them? One has one more hexagon than the other. What's the difference in the values? In the numbers that I gave, the difference between 11 and 16 is five. A hexagon's worth five. But it's, a, it's only by being as explicit as possible about the similarity and the difference. And then I would maybe go back to that original question, as in with the different number range. Now, a thing that I think is interesting is if I model that very directly, what I would consider then is, can I give children a question with what I would call different surface features, but the same underlying structure? Me and you probably appreciate this, but if I was to say, Two adults and three children go to the cinema and the cost is £38. One adult and three children go to the cinema and the cost is £28. How much does it cost for an adult? How much does it cost for a, a child to go to the cinema? And what we've got is a question that is the same mathematically, but just with that different surface features. And again, one of the benefits of using the double-sided counters, if you're ever modelling, is that idea that the double-sided counter could represent a sector and a hexagon, or it could represent an adult and a child, but it's helping to show that actually these two contexts, they've got the same underlying structure. I absolutely love that. Mm. What a great tip. And I, I love that idea because we've talked a lot in our school about, well, ever since the podcast with you about reasoning, Gareth, about the need to, to model reasoning in that way, but to model these, how I would solve a problem systematically like that. And I love the idea of what a great uh, term there, surface features, that actually the underlying structure can be the same with, adults and children because they just might not make that leap between those different contexts but that that structure is so similar and familiar and and that idea earlier of just I know you've said we could get to counters with it but of just cutting the shapes out and laying them out because when I sat with a pupil one-to-one looking at this we drew them out in a line just to highlight that difference which the picture for those of you who haven't seen it in the sats paper just doesn't naturally highlight that until you've counted the hexagons and the sectors you just you don't naturally see that because they're laid out in quite a strange arrangement I think that's a really, really good bit of advice there. The, the things that I think about maths questions is they're not that many different structures. No. There's just lots of lots of different surface features. Absolutely. And I think Absolutely. helping us to see the connections between seemingly unrelated questions. So it's not the vector and hexagon question or the cinema question, but we see that structure, I think, it, because it isn't explicit to children. Mm. Neither is it to me, really, I guess. So, uh, mm. But helping to draw attention to that, I think, is always helpful. Fantastic. Uh, Gareth, there's a final point. We touched on this earlier, but we know that you love using various types of number puzzles with children. These are often less demanded in terms of the number work required, but much trickier in terms of the logical thinking needed. Your counters on the grid problems are a really good example of this, but can you tell us more about these types of problems and why they're so great for children? Yeah, well, I've got a, a nice story about this one because I, I, I was trialing my one of my latest resources and I needed a, a class that I could try a lot of them out with before it's released. And the, the class that I managed to trial them out with included one of my daughters. <laughs> so that was, that was great fun. She, she didn't know when to call me Mr. Metcalf and when to call me daddy. Um, <laughs> but it, it, was, it, was, it was great. And, um, but with, with the class, the first thing that we did, so an aspect of that task involved positioning counters on a grid where, again, it was a four by four grid. And we've got the number of counters in each column and in each row. Now, the precursor to that was children were given images showing dots in a grid, and they were asked to just write down how many in each column and how many in each row. So they're already familiar with the layout, the kind of, if you like, the structure of the task. Mm. So when they come to actually being given the grid with the counters, 
we know that like now there's high likelihood of them having success. Now, what they do, which was really interesting, uh, which I found was really interesting anyway, was they tend to put the counters on the rows and they put the right number of counters in each row. Now, some children will happen to then move them so they've got the right number of counters in each column. What we often find is some children, they put the counters in the so there's the right number of counters in each row. They realise that there might be one too many in one column, one too few in another column. And so they say, Mr. Metcalf, this is impossible. <laughs> and I have a little panic thinking, I've made it the question impossible. <laughs> and then I think, no, come on. I, I know I found an answer. And so what we then do is maybe draw out that example, because we know that the expert problem solver in that instance, they don't go, right, this is completely wrong. I'll take all my counters off. They look at it and think, you know, what is correct? What's incorrect? And so we, that's an example that we draw attention to. So this is not correct, or, or there are some of the columns or rows are incorrect. Can we find them? And then, you know, which counter could we move to make this correct and kind of modeling modeling that thinking but that, that's a test that I really like in terms of the kind of the value of of problem solving I mean I think again coming back to we we all aspire to children being able to 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 be able to problem solve and I think then we have this kind of this wider significance of maths where we get to really toy with the kind of the emotional experience of engaging in mathematics where where we have this really meaningful struggle where we, we go into the place where we don't know what to do and we have to search for different possibilities and we have to deal with the kind of the, the uncertainty and the doubt and then we get that real euphoria when we do something which feels significant to us and, and unique it, to some extent because problem solving the, the path is ill-defined, then when we find the solution, it, there is a uniqueness. And I think that children having that experience and experiencing the joy that can come from mathematics has got to be part of their experience. And, you know, and I, I, I say, I, I think it's given me some of the best teaching experiences in my career as well. And, uh, and I, I guess I'm really passionate that that's an aspect of mathematics that every child experiences in, in primary school. Fantastic. Well, you've described problem solving as an ill-defined path, Gareth, but you've given me a well-defined path. <laughs> Clever what I did there, right? Love it. Uh, to teaching it well for our pupils. And I think what you've really got me thinking about is scaffolding to success mm -hmm. gradually and, and just reminding people again, and, and we said this in our episode about scaffolding, scaffolds can be removed. And what Gareth's described here is how we can incrementally remove those scaffolds through variation uh, but also the importance of getting children to taste success really early on, I think is really key. Well, I can't remember who spoke to us about this, but I'm sure someone described, say, uh, uh, you know, you're getting a child to have their first music lesson. You make sure they walk away from that being able to play at least a simple tune because that's their kind of their buzz straight away of having some success. I can't remember who said that to us or in what context, but I think it's that same premise you're talking about there with problem solving. We want them to feel that buzz because it is isn't it so exciting when you manage to unlock that that door into a tricky problem it's a great feeling Gareth absolutely absolutely and it's something that I, I have to say that I love myself and yeah it, mm. it's great to to see children engaging in that way well I don't know about you Steve but I always feel like I learn loads when we speak to Gareth oh without a doubt I could literally do this podcast weekly to be honest but it's been a real pleasure Gareth honest everything you say is taken and embedded because it's such useful information to anyone listening well thank you so much and i know it's an amazing podcast you do you know you're doing great things so 
thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate um, being being part of the crew. Absolutely. The Dynamic Deputies.